I don't know about you, I enjoyed uh, the last presentation. We could stay here and ask questions, and I'm sure that uh, Ambassador Fraser would be standing up here for the next two, three hours, uh, but I think we need to move on. Uh, our next panel deals with West Africa and U.S. security with focus on policy. Uh, as I mentioned before, Charles Agbo's uh, paper will not be presented because the attachment did not come uh, in the right uh, software, as it were. But it will be part of uh, the volume that will be published uh, out of this conference. So the next paper is by Emmanuel Kwesi Aning. Of course, as I mentioned before, Emmanuel is uh, on assignment for the UN, and Dr. Gifty Ako Aduvo has graciously agreed to present the paper. She, is, uh, she got her PhD from McMaster University in Canada in classical studies, and she is the director of international programs and scholars here at the Ohio State University. Uh, so I'm quite pleased that she agreed to do the honor of presenting Emmanuel Aquesi's paper. Please help me welcome her to the podium. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much. And thank you, Professor Kalu. Well, you might ask yourself what a classical scholar is standing here doing. I would like to posit that. Actually, one of the great things about um, classical studies is that you get a, a pretty much, you know, 2020 um, vision of the past. And the funny thing is that there's really nothing new in any of what we're talking now. Some might find it incredibly depressing. I, however, find it wonderfully liberating. And I'm very privileged to read Mr. Enning's paper. Um, given the length of the paper, I've had to do some um, slight slashing. I hope he will forgive me and that he will still recognize the paper that he had intended to give. Um, but of course, the full version will be in the conference proceedings. This paper is about the U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM, Issues and Perspectives. The paper analyzes the establishment of the U.S. Africa Command, popularly known as, popularly known as AFRICOM. The paper's core argument is that it is impossible to appreciate the African responses to AFRICOM without having a historical approach to two key interlinked processes. First, the history of U.S. peacekeeping policy in Africa in the post-Cold War period, and secondly, the impact of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the U.S. Therefore, U.S. policy should be examined from these two epochs, namely the period immediately after the Cold War and that after the terrorist attacks in the U.S. on September 11th of 2001. Situating AFRICOM within a historical context is important because it is necessary to capture what will later be shown as half-hearted U.S. engagement in Africa, which variously reflect benign neglect or a sense of the U.S. manifest destiny to help Africa. Such a historical lens explains what can be perceived as Africa's reluctance to accept AFRICOM. But more critical are the discordant voices from Washington and Stuttgart, Germany, 
where AFRICOM is headquartered, in convincing Africa and Africans about the rationality for such a command. And more importantly, that AFRICOM demonstrates more serious and sustained U.S. commitment to the maintenance of peace and security on the continent. While the September 11, 2000 terrorist attacks on the U.S. may probably have led to a renewed interest in Africa's security, there is no doubt that even this rationalization still leaves some doubt. First, the U.S. response to both 1998 bombings in Kenya and Tanzania demonstrated a total disregard for African lives and African security interests. Furthermore, post-9-11 security policies have been more than contradictory, to say the least. The initiation of its global war in terror has not led to a renewed interest on the continent either. There is no doubt that the shift in U.S.-Africa policy in the post-9-11 period is driven largely by its global war in terror and the desire to prevent so-called failed or fragile states from providing sanctuary to terrorist groups. For example, as early as 2002, national security strategy stated that the events of September 11, 2001 taught us that weak states can pose a great danger to our national interests as strong states. So concern over weak or failed states is another major impetus for this renewed interest. It is further argued that while the U.S. consistently denies that its newfound appreciation may also deal with its concerns about oil, available facts show that by 2015, U.S. oil imports from Africa would account for over 25% of the country's energy supply. Already, the U.S. imports more crude oil from Africa than the Middle East, with significant new discoveries in previously backwater states. Indimba identifies four reasons for the strategic significance of West African oil. A, the oil off the West African shore can be loaded from offshore and shipped easily without transshipment cost through the Atlantic Ocean to the United States. Offshore exploration also acts as a buffer for any political instability. B, West African oil is low in sulfur content. Consequently, it provides high gasoline yield, which is the preference of American refineries that are under strict environmental laws. C, the political risk in West Africa is its underdevelopment and culture of bureaucratic cor corruption. These factors have greatly contributed to its inability to manage its own affairs. While there is political risk, it is minimal when compared to the Middle East. And finally, D, West Africa is not the subject of combative political culture like radical Islam, and neither is it a ground for competing ideologies such as communism. The paper is divided into two sections. The first section traces the evolution of various peacekeeping training programs in Africa by the U.S. in the immediate post-Cold War period, and the second part focuses on U.S. policy in the post-9-11 era and is situated in the context of wider global developments, especially the U.S.-led war on terror. And uh, I'm going to be slightly unconventional and actually jump to the second part of the paper. And then, um, if we have time, I'll come back to Mr. Enning's uh, um, contextualization. This section, which is the second section actually, forms the second part of the paper and examines some of the more contemporary security challenges and concerns of both the United States and its partners in Africa. 
It focuses primarily on the U.S. policy in the post-9-11 era and is situated within the context of wider global developments, especially the U.S.-led global war on terror and the establishment of the new U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM. However, the paper also undertakes a cursory review of earlier Africa-U.S. security relations. It argues that situating recent developments in a historical context provides some of the answers to a long-term collaborative relationship fraught with frustrations, missteps, and misunderstandings. There is no doubt that Africa is increasingly becoming important to U.S. national security as a result of several critical factors, not least its critical role in the global war on terror, an increasing supply of critical but vulnerable energy supplies and needs, and more disturbingly, the specter of communicable diseases. U.S.-Africa policy has swayed between what can be characterized as George W. Bush's assertion of a new world order and Bill Clinton's assertive multilateralism. However, all these plans were overtaken and a new strategic security imperative came to the fore when the terrorist attacks happened on September 11th. The U.S. admitted that it faced threats from failing and fragile states. With its history of failed attempts, agreed to work with European allies to help strengthen Africa's fragile states, help build indigenous capacity to secure porous borders, borders and help build up law enforcement and intelligence infrastructure to deny haven for terrorists. The next section discusses in some detail how 9-11 has impacted Africa-U.S. security relations. Following the 9-11 attacks, President George Bush declared that the top priority of his administration would be a campaign to end terrorism, a declaration which became known as the War on Terror. President Bush, in an address to the Joint Houses of Congress, officially launched the War on Terror and defined it thus. Our War on Terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. The critical distinction is that the Al-Qaeda poses a threat to international peace and security and to the interest of the U.S. in particular. Against the backdrop of Al-Qaeda's involvement in the attacks, the president stated that the Al-Qaeda network, its sponsors and collaborators, pose a threat to U.S. interests and to international peace and security and would therefore be targeted. Since its launch, the war on terror has become a linchpin in U.S. security calculations and an indispensable foreign policy determinant globally. The war on terror has been characterized by a mix of conventional and asymmetric warfare. Conventional warfare entails direct engagement on land, sea, and or air of two or more military forces. However, the war on terror presents a combination of military operations and guerrilla and urban-style warfare conducted by the proponents of the war on terror against nebulous terrorist groups and non-state actors. The terrorists who are the main targets in this war are scattered around the world without definitive geographical and territorial boundaries, making it practically difficult for strategic or even tactical fixing, targeting, and engagement. During the Bill Clinton administration, the terminology of waging a war against terrorism had been discounted by one of his senior policy advisors who saw terrorism as a challenge to be managed, not solved by war, and so consequently objected to the metaphor of waging a war against terrorism. This approach derived from the concept that it is a war that cannot be won. 
and unlike most wars, it has neither a fixed set of enemies nor the prospect of coming to closure. The war on terror has contributed to redefining interstate relations by emphasizing interstate cooperation. So as to defeat terrorist networks and infrastructures, deny terrorist haven and sponsorship, eradicate sources of terrorist financing, ensure individual country domestic security, reduce state vulnerability to terrorism, and enhance emergency preparedness and response capabilities. The U.S. and the EU have since 9-11 concluded agreements earlier considered unattainable and worked together much more closely than before in this effort to fight terrorism. There have been several anti-terrorism initiatives calling for solidarity and cooperation with the U.S. and the identification of common policies, which although recommended earlier have recently been given a renewed urgency for implementation. This is based on an increasing realization that success in the war on terror is largely dependent on the ability to cooperate on a wide range of issues in order to track and block the finances and communications networks of terrorist groups around the globe. In order to carry out these operations, the U.S. was able to obtain the support of several countries that collectively came to be described as the Coalition of the Willing. The formation of the coalition was facilitated through the use of political, diplomatic, military, and particularly economic levers by the U.S., Afghanistan, and Iraq. Sorry. The, the formation of the coalition was facilitated through the use of political, diplomatic, military, and particularly economic levers by the U.S. Afghanistan and Iraq were identified as sponsors of terrorists, and among other reasons, the operations in both countries were aimed at, at stemming the state sponsorship of terrorists. Following the terrorist attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C., there has evolved a phenomenon for the use of ODA as an instrument for containing terrorism. This follows the realization that state fragility and poverty have implications on the establishment and operation of terrorist groups. In Afghanistan, for example, poverty and state fragility leading to a surge of the Taliban led to the creation of an enabling environment for Al-Qaeda's establishment its ability to develop a formidable operational capacity and to launch subsequent operations. According to Michael J. Williams and Jessica von Borstel, this highlighted the link of the, war, of the war on terror to developmental as well as military issues. This realization has impacted on the general trends of aid allocation globally. And there has been a phenomenal rise of more than 20 billion in new resources for development assistance between 2001 and 2004, primarily attributable to the war on terror. However, development assistance to regions considered as less strategic to the war on terror have been marginalized in favor of other geographical regions seen as being more relevant to the war on terror effort. Opponents and supporters of the world of the war on terror have either been chastised or rewarded respectively through the use of ODA allocations with Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq being the main recipients of the largest of key actors of the war on terror. And um, Professor, in, um, sorry, Mr. Eni actually gives um, some tables over here that are quite instructive. Unfortunately, I cannot show them to you, but um, in the conference proceedings, hopefully they will make a lot of sense. 
Though 9-11 boosted aid in many regions, most of the aid went to augment security sectors rather than purely for development. In Africa, for example, which saw its aid at, which saw aid at its peak in 2004, the beneficiaries were either petroleum exporting countries or countries which had enlisted their support for the, for the world, sorry, for the war on terror, such as Nigeria, Angola, Egypt, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Sudan. This is quite different from what Dr. Fraser was outlining earlier. Among the members of the Coalition of the Willing or important allies um, in the war on terror, only Eritrea has seen funding decrease as evidenced by tables that unfortunately I cannot show you. Um, but it can be observed that the flow of ODA to Africa in the aftermath of 9-11 um, has seen a significant decline to 3.8% in 2004 from about 12.2% in 1990. There are several reasons for what seem like an apparent contradiction of U.S. policy in this area. One of the unintended consequences of the U.S.'s unilateral tendencies after 9-11 has been the short-term application of the American Service Members Protection Act, which prohibits certain types of military aid to countries that have signed on to the International Criminal Court, the ICC, but have not signed a separate Article 98 agreement with the U.S. According to BOND, U.S. military and security-related aid to Africa has also increased, and countries that previously were of little importance to the U.S., have acquired new funding through the war on terror. Djibouti, for example, obtained $31 million for allowing the U.S. to establish a permanent base there. Furthermore, under the Pan-Sahelian Initiative, PSI, which was created in 2002, U.S. Special Operations Forces supply weapons, vehicles, and military training to anti-terrorism teams in Mali, Niger, Chad, and Mauritania. In other African cases, for instance, it has been suggested that South Africa, Mali, and Namibia had their development funds reduced after their refusal to sign bilateral immunity agreements with the U.S. to guarantee U.S. troops immunity from the International Criminal Court. It is evident that aid programs, not only from the U.S., but most other major donors, have shifted emphases in the post-9-11 era and have greatly been influenced by the dynamics of the war on terror. Consequently, one can conclude that aid has become highly securitized and politicized as a weapon for the realization of the goals of the war on terror. The result of such processes is that aid for political and social, sorry, aid for political and security purposes have a tendency to counter support development priorities. Although Africa-U.S. security relations have been characterized by ups and downs. One of the last official acts, the former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, was to, was to recommend the establishment of a new U.S. Africa Command headquarters to be known as AFRICOM to coordinate all U.S. military and security interests throughout Africa. In a White House statement announcing the establishment of this command, President George Bush rationalized this new establishment thus. This new command will strengthen our security cooperation with Africa and create opportunities to bolster the, capa the capabilities of our partners in Africa. Africa Command will enhance our efforts to bring peace and security to the people of Africa and promote our common goals of development, health, education, democracy, and economic growth in Africa. Several reasons account for the decision to establish AFRICOM. 
Until the decision to establish this new command, U.S. military engagement in Africa was collectively controlled by the European Command, the U.S. Central Command, and the U.S. Pacific Command. The, the implementation of a new combatant command for Africa, AFRICOM, was announced in February 2007. Africa's state, AFRICOM's stated mission is to prevent conflict by promoting stability regionally and eventually prevail over extremism by never letting its seeds germinate in Africa, to address underdevelopment and poverty which are making Africa a fertile ground for breeding terrorists, to view the people, the nations, and the continent of Africa from the same perspective that they view themselves, to build the capacity of African nations through training and equipping African militaries, conducting training and medical missions, and undertake any necessary military action in Africa despite its non-kinetic nature, such as humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Supporters contend that this is a step that accurately reflects Africa's growing strategic importance and an enlightened U.S. foreign policy focused on supporting African solutions to African problems. Opponents allege that the command demonstrates a self-serving American policy focused on fighting terrorism, securing Africa's burgeoning energy stocks, and countering Chinese influence. AFRICOM's commander, General William E. Ward, outlines the aims of AFRICOM thus. We are building the team. We have the opportunity, vision, and determination to redefine how the U.S. military cooperates with and complements the efforts of its U.S. international and non-governmental partners in Africa. AFRICOM will add value and do no harm to the collective and substantial ongoing efforts on the continent. And AFRICOM seeks to build partnerships to enable the work of Africans in providing for their own security. Our intent is to build mutual trust, respect, and confidence with our partners on the continent and our international friends. Now, whether the motivations behind AFRICOM are as benign as General Ward would have us believe, the bottom line is that Africans just do not trust AFRICOM. Appearing before the U.S. House Committee on African Affairs hearing on AFRICOM, where Fula Okuma pre presented cogent arguments that demonstrated why AFRICOM faces challenges of credibility in Africa and also suggested ways for how the U.S. might come out of this quagmire. So, what, what Africans think of AFRICOM? Despite its altruistic sounding objectives, AFRICOM is yet to be warmly and widely embraced in Africa, as the following comments indicate and I will recite. AFRICOM would destabilize an already fragile continent and region which will be forced to engage with U.S. interests on military terms. Another. Ironically, AFRICOM was announced as Chinese President Hu Jintao was touring eight African nations to negotiate deals that will enable China to secure oil flows from Africa. AFRICOM is aimed at influencing, threatening, and warding off any, co any competitors by using force. African countries should wake up after seeing the scars of others, i.e. Afghanistan and Iraq. Mohamed Bejawi, the Algerian Minister of State and Foreign Affairs, has questioned why there was no proposal for an anti-terror 
anti-terror cooperation with Algeria when the country was experiencing high levels of terrorist violence in the 1990s. Another, how can the U.S. divide the world up into its own military commands? Wasn't that for the United Nations to do? What would happen if China also decided to create its Africa command? Would this not lead to conflict on the continent? Another, increased U.S. military presence in Africa may simply serve to protect unpopular regimes that are friendly to its, to its interests, as was the case during the Cold War, while Africa slips further into poverty. People on the street in Africa assume that, their, assume that their governments have already had too many dealings with the U.S. in the war on terror at the expense of the rule of law. The regime realizes that the whole idea is very unpopular. So those, were, those are some of the things that people are thinking in Africa about AFRICOM. But worse still, as stated earlier, the mixed messages from Washington are particularly worrying. For example, in 1995, the DOD in its U.S. security strategy for sub-Saharan Africa stated that the U.S. has very little tr traditional strategic interest in Africa. But... Theresa Whelan, the Assistant Secretary for Defense, had recently argued that Africa is providing tens of thousands of U.S. jobs, possesses 8% of the world's petroleum, and is a major source of critical minerals, precious metals, and food commodities. Ryan Henry, the Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and Pentagon Point Man on Africa, has stated that its purpose is not to wage war, but to work in concert with U.S. and African partners for a more stable environment in which political and economic growth can take place. However, General Walton means no words when he stated that, I'd like to have some forward bases in Africa. The world has changed and we are going to make our security. The halcyon days are over. General Vance Craddock, the UCOM commander, told journalists in Washington in June that protecting energy assets, particularly in West, West Africa and the Gulf of Guinea, would guide the focus of AFRICOM. General Craddock added that AFRICOM will enable countries in West Africa to improve their security of any type of production, oil, natural gas, minerals. These intentions are reflective of the bold recommendations made by Vice President Dick Cheney's National Energy Policy Development Group in 2001 that the Bush administration makes energy security a priori priority of U.S. trade and foreign policy. One year later, the Bush administration rolled out its West Point doctrine that essentially stated that the U.S. would not allow a major economic or major economic, political, or military competitor to emerge in the region. There is no doubt that there is great suspicion about AFRICOM as is represented by the reluctance by all significant African states to host its headquarters on the continent, except broken Liberia. However, there may yet be a way out for the U.S. Basically, the U.S. needs to pay keen attention to the following in order to overcome the serious concerns that Africans have of AFRICOM. There is the need for more open, upfront dialogue with civil society on the rationale, mission objectives, and specific benefits that AFRICOM would bring to the African human security agenda. Furthermore, the U.S. must demonstrate that there are genuine opportunities for African states within the proposed structure that would guarantee links with civil society to ensure transparency, accountability, and participation, and contextual relevance to Africa's lived experiences and challenges. 
Consequently, whatever AFRICOM seeks to achieve mil militarily and diplomatically and on the humanitarian fronts, this must be in close concert and in complement to the African Standby Force, ASF. And the work of the AU and regional mechanisms to prevent, manage, and resolve conflicts in Africa. To achieve its objectives, AFRICOM will need to define, elaborate, and clarify the nature of its partnership and relationships with the African Union's Peace and Security Council, PSC, and the AU Authority, and the established mechanisms for conflict prevention, management, and resolution, likewise its centers of training excellence. And I'm afraid I have to stop here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, we will have the, you will have the pleasure of reading the paper. I'm grateful to Dr. Akuadovo for attempting to present almost a 40-page paper uh, in 30 minutes. Uh, our next presentation is a joint presentation, which is an evaluation of the U.S. Trans-Sahel Counterterrorism Initiative. Uh, the presentation will be by our own Julius Yagoro and Andrea Walter. Uh, well, actually, because we don't have one presenter on the panel, uh, our assumption is we take the balance of the time. Um, yes, uh, and the other point is uh, uh, this is not really a joint presentation. Um, I'm here to support uh, Andrea, and so I'll spend only uh, five minutes uh, introducing the uh, subject and then I'll hand it over to her <coughs> because she did 98% of the work and I did only 2% of the work. Uh, it, is, it is interesting uh, that uh, we are coming right, right after uh, Chris Ning's presentation and uh, Jendai's presentation because uh, you know, we had conspired, Andrea and I had conspired that we just wanted to blow Jendai out of the water in terms of everything she would want to present uh, but we find ourselves uh, kind of agreeing with her <laughs> a bit. So, uh, you know, so uh, uh, we're kind of disappointed a little bit. But nonetheless, I think our job uh, is to uh, essentially uh, create a condition whereby we begin to understand firmly uh, what uh, Generica will call where the, uh, where the, uh, 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 the rubber meets the road in the sense that our task uh, is to make an analysis of a very specific program uh, which comes out of, of a larger context. And uh, we must confess that we never chose the title. Uh, the title was imposed uh, on us by the, uh, by the boss man. Um, and, and actually, you know, we did ask ourselves quite a bit, uh, is this something that we need to do? Uh, and uh, as you may notice, if you received an earlier iteration of the uh, program, uh, the, the title was, uh, has now been slightly changed uh, because of, of our understanding uh, of the evolution of the program as uh, it has come through over the last uh, uh, few years. Uh, our presentation uh, would be, of course, on the U.S. Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership 
and evaluate that. Uh, I will uh, spend uh, five minutes or so dealing with uh, three aspects of the presentation, which is the 9-11 security assessment of West Africa by the United States, the context for that, uh, uh, highlight some security vulnerabilities uh, uh, as uh, perceived by both states and the academy, uh, and of course the threat of terrorism in West Africa in particular, and our job will, will be to try and see if indeed there, there is uh, uh, a coherence between the perception uh, and the reality on the ground uh, as a basis for uh, evaluating the program itself. Uh, the context, of course, uh, in, in, in evaluating uh, the, the CT uh, partnership uh, in West Africa is, is 9-11. So 9-11 uh, is no longer the, uh, the elephant in the room where nobody talks about. Uh, we know that for the past uh, nine years, 9-11 uh, has pretty much been the context in which uh, security uh, dialogue and conversations take place. As an example of that, uh, uh, I can, you know, we'll give two quotes, uh, three quotes rather. Uh, one from Jim Jones, who was the UCOM commander, uh, when he testified in front of the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee uh, on 9-11 uh, with relation to Africa. And this is what he said. He said, uh, African stability uh, became identified as, quote, a near-term global strategic imperative and is a high priority, which, of course, puts uh, Africa at the center of the uh, security strategic discourse, uh, which again goes on to one of the points that Jendai made, that you do not, uh, we do not consider Africa simply as a humanitarian case, as indeed uh, uh, Secretary uh, uh, Rice uh, indicated earlier, uh, but rather as an important strategic player in terms of the global view in which the U.S. Uh, perceives its security. Uh, and in the 2002 uh, U.S. National Security Strategy, uh, uh, there is a very specific comment related to Africa, which is uh, uh, the need to strengthen Africa's fragile states and help build indigenous capability to secure porous borders and help build up the law enforcement and intelligence infrastructure to deny havens for terrorists. And, of course, there are a bunch of assumptions that are, are built into that, but nonetheless, uh, it is part of what uh, drives uh, U.S. security uh, policy towards Africa, and in this case, particularly towards West Africa. And, of course, the 206 uh, QDR uh, affirmed the tendency of terrorist groups to take advantage of, quote, ungoverned territories. Now, I know in this, in, in this uh, meeting we have all these political social scientists who have gone into lengthy discussions and discourses on what ungoverned territories means. Uh, um, and, uh, of course, uh, there's the a whole range of, of schools of thought on this one. Uh, what may seem to Americans as ungoverned territories, they're actually fairly elaborate social networks which actually uh, makes things work. A good example will be um, in terms of the general argument on Somalia, uh, where, where the argument from the U.S. side was because Somalia was so, uh, uh, because of the failed state, uh, there are large segments of uh, ungoverned territories, and so it was important that some sort of security mechanism be established 
uh, to not to allow, for example, al-Shabaab operatives uh, to do their bad thing. Uh, but then you have other Somali uh, scholars uh, who would argue that what may seem uh, as ungoverned territories, even for other Africans coming from Kenya or, or Ethiopia for that matter, does not mean that these places are ungoverned in Somalia. So we have to have that nuanced understanding. But why am I saying this as a footnote to the conversation? That we have different interpretations, and these different interpretations, if we're not careful, uh, may, may throw off uh, the analysis in terms of what is really important and central uh, to any conversation in terms of, of security. Uh, you know, so uh, we, let's have this as a footnote uh, to everything that we do. But nonetheless, uh, if we are to look at what we may perceive as, as uh, West African security vulnerabilities, uh, again, as a footnote, uh, when we talk about vulnerabilities, it doesn't mean that actually then the vulnerabilities have been acted upon. What we do is we, we highlight them. And once we highlight them, then let try to, let's try to see if indeed some of the policy measures that have been undertaken actually do respond appropriately to these vulnerabilities. Or maybe there is an overreaction or underreaction to those vulnerabilities. An overreaction will have tremendous consequences, mostly negative underreaction would have obviously also negative consequences. So it's, it's a very important uh, uh, balancing act that we must uh, have in terms of the analysis itself, uh, both for uh, politics and policy and, of course, uh, the uh, uh, analysis itself. So one can fairly easily look at uh, two sets uh, of vulnerabilities. One would be the, the root causes, and one, uh, the other one would be permissive uh, factors. We all know about the severely underdeveloped political economies of our of our region. Uh, as, as I indicated yesterday, and as everybody has been noting, uh, West Africa uh, uh, is a severely underdeveloped uh, uh, space. Uh, you have extreme poverty. In you know, uh, we have done research in Mali, in Mauritania, in uh, you name it. Even in my favorite country of West Africa, Nigeria, where you have tons and tons of money floating around, but the level of poverty is also quite high. If anything, what you have is increasing poverty on the large segment of the segments of the population in Nigeria, while you still have almost now a trillion dollars out of the oil industry. Um, and of course, we have weak and ineffective governments. Uh, this, of course, goes on to the general discussion that uh, we in the academy have had for several years. I suppose uh, we concretize in, uh, in Bill Zatman's volume, Collapse States. You know, it is a whole case of, uh, of analysis in terms of uh, how do we determine fragility, how we determine uh, states which have collapsed, how do we determine st states that are on the way towards collapsing, uh, and what do these do in terms of the security uh, profile of these countries. Uh, and then, of course, we have the, uh, my favorite, ungoverned or undergoverned territories. Um, yes, we know about Somalia, but in West Africa, uh, the same case can be made for uh, countries such as Mauritania, countries such as Mali, uh, even the so-called well-governed state of Senegal. Uh, one can always go in, 
not to mention uh, my third favorite country in West Africa, Chad, uh, uh, and all these places uh, whereby uh, you, really, you really have uh, uh, a long historical record uh, of, of the inability of, of states to actually have an effective presence. Um, and one of the things that uh, I, would, I would differ with uh, some of my colleagues, they blame the current post-independence governments for having these large segments of ungoverned territories. But there are large uh, segments of Chad or Mauritania, for that matter, you know, where the French uh, uh, had not even penetrated post-World War I. So it is a long, continuing historical problem. Um, and uh, as, as much as we may disagree at some level with uh, Jeff Herb's uh, uh, analysis, which came out about five, six years ago, what's the title of the book? Yes, state, state power and authority in, in Africa, where, where, where Jeff argues that, uh, uh, if anything, you know, the prognosis is so bad that uh, at some point maybe we're wasting our times trying to uh, bring these states to the 21st century. These are, these are, these are solid cases of hopelessness. Uh, and so, uh, if anything, in terms of policy recommendation, I would argue, uh, if we are Americans, then just, you know, when there's a problem in Mali, just decide to send in a huge brigade, take care of the problem, and come back home. Uh, that would be my, one of the implications of, of, of uh, such a situation. And the other element, of course, will be uh, that these territories have uh, majority Muslim populations. Now, you know, this, of course, runs into one of the dangers that Russ uh, Howard uh, noted yesterday. Uh, just the presence of large Muslim populations has gotten nothing to do with the existence of, of terrorism or necessarily make these places vulnerable. Uh, what it does is they are vulnerable because of other kinds of factors. And so what we want to do is to try to see if indeed simply the presence of Muslim populations has had a particular effect in West Africa. What are the permissive factors? The permissive factors are weak militaries, uh, weak militaries which are associated actually with uh, ineffective states. Um, and, and, and of course when you have weak militaries, then if uh, a group uh, which is well organized, even if it might be small, it can, uh, it can uh, do considerable damage. Uh, and so what we need to do is try and, and, and make the connection between the existence of weak militaries as a permissive factor and uh, what outside uh, factors come in. And prevalence of organized crime and smuggling networks. Now, these have existed even before the threat of terrorism. Uh, one of the issues that one can talk about in terms of Mauritania or Mali, uh, you have had these massive networks uh, of, uh, of Tuareg, uh, uh, Tuareg uh, uh, smuggling networks. Hey, that's how they've survived over the centuries. Uh, and uh, so the, the existence per se uh, does not necessarily mean that all of a sudden these places are as vulnerable as we might seem uh, to think. And West Africa is a region of uh, a history of conflict. Uh, everybody knows about it. We don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to spend time on it. Uh, and uh, the history of coups and corruption. Um, uh, in my weak moments, I say that I think you know, we as Africanists are being unfair on West Africa in terms of uh, the history of coups and corruption. But uh, solid uh, statistical data analysis will tell you that 
what, 78 to 80% of all the military coups that have happened in West Africa. So uh, I, I move away from my weak moments to my realistic moments and actually accept this, uh, this uh, data. And large quantities of readily available weapons, which have got to do with everything that I have outlined. Uh, I think uh, one of the uh, uh, incredible data that I, uh, I learned about a few months ago is in, uh, was in Nigeria. Um, that in Nigeria, the small weapons in Nigeria are like, what, I mean, 1.5 million. Uh, now, if you have 1.5 million small weapons uh, circulating around in Nigeria, and Nigeria is only one country, you can multiply that several times over, and all of a sudden, the, the vulnerabilities of, of states and the possibility of uh, terrorists uh, uh, get, getting their hands on the weapons uh, 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 greatly enhanced. So, uh, as, as an evaluation, um, and not necessarily a conclusion, but as an evaluation at this point in the analysis, uh, you know, what can we uh, make of a threat of terrorism in West Africa, or at least in the region we're talking about? Because as you'll note, uh, Andrea, when she comes in, will tell us that actually uh, the analysis of the particular program goes beyond traditional West Africa. It goes all the way up to the Mediterranean. Uh, and so, but in terms of just looking at uh, the threat of terrorism in West Africa, um, uh, can we talk about uh, uh, a high, low, medium, moderate, transnational uh, a terrorist threat? Our analysis suggests that it is low. Uh, and it is low because, as you noted, uh, when uh, Gender was making her presentations, whenever she gave an example of the terror transnational terrorist threat in West Africa, she, uh, she uh, fell back to AQIM. Why did she do that? Uh, because that's pretty much, you know, what has been there. Uh, there might be others, but uh, we have not had any firm grasp uh, on, on, on anything else. Uh, and so, you know, our assessment and evaluation is transnational terrorist threats are low. Uh, domestic uh, terrorist threat, this is a tricky question. Uh, again, the point that Jendai uh, made, uh, local regimes looking at their own local terrorist troubles and transnationalizing them because it is easier for you to get money from outside if you transnationalize them. Uh, and in this case, we'll say they are, they are moderate, uh, between moderate and significant, uh, we, and we can identify the countries, Mauritania, Algeria, Mali, Nigeria. Uh, and in terms of terrorist financing and facilitation, we'll say because of the inexactness uh, of the data, uh, we can simply talk about moderate on the assumption that all these other things that I've indicated do actually happen. And with that, I'll shut up and give it to Andrea. Thank you, Julius. So I think as uh, the last presenter has had already started explaining, um, in planning pretty much immediately after 9-11 in, in early 2002 um, began and formulated uh, the Pan-Sahel Initiative, which started off as a $7 million state-led program um, which focused on four, uh, four countries. Um, and those four countries, um, basically everything that Julius just ran through, um, all of those root uh, causes and, and vulnerabilities um, were thought to exist in these four countries, Mali, Niger, Chad, and Mauritania. Um, the original goal was to facilitate greater cooperation and an information exchange among the governments in the region. 
um, on counterterrorism and border security issues. Uh, the di diplomatic side, State Department led information campaigns um, on a country-by-country -country basis that talked about the, ther the uh, terrorist threat and the vulnerabilities each country faced. And on the military side, uh, Special Operations Command, the Jesota helped train uh, rapid reaction companies, um, about 150 soldiers in each country. Um, in 2005, um, this then tr transformed into the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Initiative. Um, it was a much more comprehensive approach. Um, they had uh, different agencies, not just state and defense. Uh, USAID became a part of it. The Department of Treasury was involved. Um, and they had significantly increase in resources. Initially, um, the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Initiative continued to focus on the four key countries, um, and it was supposed to be a five-year program that was granted $353 million. Um, on the state side, rather than just information campaigns, state began uh, developing civil society initiatives, and Treasury um, was tasked with tightening up some of the uh, money laundering and financial issues that Julius talked about uh, just a second ago. Then in 2007, uh, it morphed into the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership. Um, and I think that the name change in 2007 was extremely important. It reflected the transformation of the program from an, an initiative that was solely U.S. interest-based to uh, demonstrating the partnership that the U.S. Uh, is hoping to achieve with its African partner nations. Uh, five additional countries were added to the, uh, to the TSCTP program. Um, and foc the focus... Uh, really uh, broadened to mitigating asymmetrical threats throughout the region. OEFTS was created, um, and it was expanded, which was is the military—not created. I'm sorry, it was expanded um, the harder security portion of the program to include uh, many more military-to-military -military engagements and exercises uh, to strengthen the ability of regional governments to police a lot of the undergoverned territories we've been talking about. Uh, the mandate was broadened, as I mentioned. Um, now, TSCTP is responsible for strengthening regional counterterrorism capabilities, enhancing and institutionalizing cooperation amongst regional security forces. It's not a country-by-country -country approach anymore. Um, de denying support and sanctuary through strategically targeted development assistance, promoting democratic governance, discrediting terrorist ideology, and reinforcing bilateral military ties with the United States. Um, just a little more detail, USAID's programs uh, of development go into things such as community, youth community activism, income generation, interfaith dialogue and community outreach, conflict management through community radio, and local governance um, and community radio programs. Um, and the State Department programs um, are things uh, along the lines of uh, religious tolerance, um, technology, technological programs, um, and things like that. So basically, the core elements are what I just said. I'm sorry. So getting to the assessment part of the presentation, um, I think all in all, we can see a lot of positive things that have happened. Um, first of all, there's been an enlarged security, diplomatic, and development um, initiatives that have come out of these programs. Um, there has been a link 
there was a, a cogent link from PSI to TSCTI to TSCTP. Lessons, you know, there were lessons were learned and implemented as the program uh, transformed and moved forward. However, what we see, though, on the ground and utilizing this program as an example is that there is a gap with between what Julia started out the presentation, what our policy, what our national security strategies, what our policy documents are putting out there, and the actual funding and how the programs break down on the ground. Uh, security within this program, I'm not talking about overall U.S. Uh, you know, uh, funding to, to, or development, U.S. total assistance to a country. I'm talking about um, these counterterrorism programs, which are supposed to be interagency um, programs. You see within that uh, assistance very heavily on the mill-to-mill, train-and-equip, uh, assistant, as the previous speaker said, equipment uh, donation programs. Um, we believe that focusing on this CT aspect, even though these programs are attempting, you know, to go in, into uh, alleviating poverty, um, the uh, religious tolerance, and um, dipl diplomatic endeavors, that the focus on the overall CT umbrella um, is leaves countries open to manipulation. I think Mali is a great example. Um, I think Mauritania is a great example. Uh, one of our uh, recommendations is to disaggregate these five large issues. This is, uh, General Howard referred to this yesterday. Disaggregate the five large issues and address each of these in issues independently. Oops, sorry. So what are the effects of this policy? Uh, we strongly believe that if you are putting forth a security assistance policy uh, and diplomatic and development package that really is overwhelmingly heavy on the security end, um, we're showing countries that the way to get to the negotiating table is through their militaries. Um, in Mali in particular, um, there, is, there are issues in the north, and by you know, uh, linking them to the transnational threats, uh, they just received 43 SUVs, uh, in the last two weeks. Now, that's not to say that they don't seriously need equipment to um, monitor and to monitor their borders and the nor their northern regions. But the fact that it's linked to this counterterrorism program, we think, is uh, dangerous. Um, it has the potential to develop unhealthy civil-military balances, um, and the fact that security sector reform is really not important. And uh, I just have the, the, the numbers from Mali. I focused my uh, master's work on Mali. Out of 24.6 of peace and security funds million that the U.S. gave in 2007, 24.5 million of that is for counterterrorism. Only $52,000 was given to security sector reform. So we are training and equipping forces and really not making sure that the military institutions and the political institutions are uh, able to withstand that, that training. So I think that one of the, the frustrations of mine in spending a lot of time focusing on trying to drill down on what programs are actually uh, in existence on the ground is that a lot of people complain about them, a lot of people point out the weaknesses, and there aren't really good recommendations that are set out there how we can start working towards uh, a, a, better, a better future. Um, I think a more cohesive and balanced set of U.S. democratization programs, good governance um, on the bilateral, regional, and international level towards Africa is imperative. 
um, the primary TSCTP uh, security focus and funding should be on security sector reform. Now, that also includes uh, a lot of training. That includes equipment, but it should be really put under a security sector reform umbrella. Um, we've had fi fantastic increases in trained peacekeeping, uh, but let's concent concentrate, rather than in uh, bilateral peacekeeping engagements, let's focus on um, peacekeeping capacity building through ECOWAS and AU and the crisis response capacity. Um, we think we, that the program should focus on building the capacity and competency of the existing democratic security and governmental institutions. Um, and we think that a little bit, you know, MCC is doing this, but, um, you know, extract commitments from the governments if we are giving them all of this security aid as to what they can do regionally, um, you know, to give back. Um, and we've already said, let's, let's take the t focus off terrorism um, and let's increase funding for other regional security issues. So counterterrorism is not the only huge security issue on the table. Now, you know, in the past year, drug trafficking in West Africa, well, not the past year, in the past few years, uh, it has skyrocketed. This is a really, the African Partnership Station handles this. This is a fantastic opportunity to create a similar larger program to show Africans that, you know, terrorism is not the top security objective. And I know we've talked about uh, oil and balancing and balancing China, but, you know, drug trafficking is a serious uh, problem that also does not just affect the TSCTP nations. It is the whole, the whole subregion. So now we go into just a list of some successful uh, recommendations for um, the interagency implementation part of TSCTP, because I think there are policy issues that TSCTP has, and then there's problems within this new state defense aid trying to make this work. Um, obviously, there's a huge imbalance between the financial and personnel resourcing of the Defense Department uh, versus state and aid. Uh, I was just at a conference in D.C. on Wednesday on AFRICOM, a one-year assessment, and somebody made a comment that for the 1,300 people that are within U.S. Africa Command, the State Department and USAID combined does not have both at home state and in the field that many individuals working on Africa. How are we able to balance these programs if um, there is not some more of a balance brought financially in, 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 in personal resources? Uh, I was just asking Jendai about this earlier. Uh, we need vertical and horizontal support of programs like this. If it's an interagency program and it's defense heavy and the Defense Department supports it, we need all up the chain of command, not just the implementers, to be uh, uh, you know, telling their offices in the field that this is a significant priority. Um, state and uh, the Defense Department have a lot of problems and are working to fix them. Um, planning, uh, state plans on a country-to-country -country basis, uh, defense plans on a regional or, or, or on a continent-wide basis. They need and the, the timing of the planning strategies um, thus far has been out of out of whack. Uh, does not go at, at the same planning cycles. This makes it very hard to implement programs um, and align them across the interagency. Um, so we think that you know more uh, more staff exchanges. Uh, states to defense. There are, yes, there are interagency personnel within uh, Africa Command. Yet, um, we, there should be just as many uh, Defense Department individuals going uh, interagency and being posted in other departments across the federal system. Um, 
And not only that, but there needs to be incentivization created within uh, each department so that they want to go and do that in order to move up their own uh, their own hierarchy. Because otherwise, if a Defense Department individual goes over to the State Department, he doesn't know when or she when she comes back in where they're going to stack up against their colleagues who just stayed. So. Basically, here's just a breakdown of individualized departmental recommendations. Uh, the Defense Department has a foreign area officer program that um, after a certain uh, tours of duty or years in service that um, defense personnel are allowed to uh, uh, go for advanced studies. Um, funding to these programs should be dramatically increased. Um, and the military system is plug and play. Um, you know. Six months rotation here, and they're out. They might be off to Asia, Europe, Latin America, who knows. Um, if the Defense Department could create a regional rotational system to actually build uh, their knowledge in the, the, on the continent, we think this would uh, bring huge gains. Um, State Department obviously is understaffed, and USAID, we need an increased presence in the embassies. And this is, uh, I know, a very dicey, a dicey subject, but... Um, USAID to be a organization that does development for development's sake rather than development as a tool of foreign policy, uh, we believe that USAID should become its own federal federal department. So, yes, very tough time. So just in looking at those recommendations, we compared them to the first year of the Obama administration. Oops, sorry. Go back. And there are some positive signs. Um, there, you know, are talks of a 10% budgetary increase each year for the next 10 years to state and aid. Um, this can be reflected in new classes. I think there's 750 additional USAID uh, personnel and and similar amount of foreign service officers that are being created. Um, there has been great presidential attention to, uh, I mean, the civilian surge in Afghanistan. We hope that there is continued attention to civilian ramping up civilian capacity in uh, U.S. embassies in Africa. Um, time will tell whether there is, oh, I, yes, time will tell whether there's vertical and horizontal interagency support. But on the planning side of things, um, Secretary Clinton uh, came out and um, has announced that she is now going to be doing a quadrennial defense and diplomatic review, obviously modeled after the QDR. Um, this is good. There will be hopefully heightened attention to the review. Every four years we'll be putting issues out there just like the Defense Department does and uh, highlighting deficiency, disconnect, um, or, or need and need. So continuing on the planning, on the structural side of things, um, there is much more cross-pollination going on at planning conferences. DOD is now being involved to State Department conferences, State Department conferences, State Department is being involved and invited to DOD, um, and planning cycles are beginning to be aligned. This uh, upcoming theater security cooperation conference is for the first time being held in November this year to align with USAID and State Department planning cycles. So these are all very good, uh, very good signs. And the fact that even though hopefully it will happen, uh, President Obama made the focus of his speech in Ghana um, on institution building. That's it. You, you can see my guests always try to ignore the time. And, uh, How much time do we have? 10, 20 minutes. Uh, 20 minutes. So okay. that means uh, you now have 
Thank you. Uh, our next presenter is uh, General Arobo for Jones, uh, whose paper is on U.S.-Africa military cooperation, the view of African officers. I'm glad that uh, General Jones is here because the paper is on 40 pages. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to summarize it, so he will give us a brief uh, synopsis of it. General Jones. Thank you, sir. Uh, first, le let me use this opportunity to thank Osu and the organizer of this uh, conference for giving me the privilege and opportunity to come here and um, share or discuss with you a very important segment of uh, the military situation in Africa. Uh, what they want from me is to express the views of African officers on the U.S., Africa military cooperation. In doing this job, I spoke to close to about 2,000 officers by phone, through email, and by personal contact. So you can imagine how difficult it's going to be for me to be here for 20 minutes to really express this to you. However, the methodology I want to use in making my presentation will be like this. I will do a little bit of introduction. Then I will go ahead and see what is happening at the Gulf, even though so much has been said about it. Then I will look at the African command, just a highlight of it. Then I will move a little bit to see what Africa is actually thinking about with respect to the military cooperation with the United States. Then I will consider the scholars, African scholars. What are their views? Why am I trying to do that? Because the views of the military officers derives from the positions of the African government as well as African scholars. So it is very important for you to see that. How are the African states? What are their feelings? The professors of politics, military strategy, who are Africans, how do they feel? I think that is very important. The other point I want to raise is this. As somebody who spent about 34 years in the military in Africa, in Nigeria specifically, I know one thing is very, very important. Seldom do you see officers depart from the way the government or his government want things to be done. If you do it, you won't find it funny. 
And you know, in, in Africa, like many of the speakers have said, coup has kind of become a very frequent issue, particularly in West Africa. And no officer wants to be involved or want to be caught in an act that may be described as mutiny, so that the hangman problem of coup will not be put on his neck. As such, you will bear with me if I just mention some few names, but I will give you the general view of what the officers are saying. Uh, before I go into the lecture, I want to, uh, shall I say, the issue you want me to discuss is a very difficult one. Why is it difficult? I'm here as a retired military general from Nigeria, and I'm coming to discuss the views of African officers, presumably serving and retired in Africa for my African brothers and sisters there. It could be very sensitive. But I will try very hard to give you the real picture of how the officers, the scholars, and African leaders are feeling about the cooperation between the U.S. military and African military. I know a lot of all will say no, but it's okay. I'm bound to have my opinion. Africa is bound to have its own opinion. Maybe our brother in the United States will have their own opinions. But let's see how we can share opinion and then come up with something that will help that relationship. U.S., Africa, military, cooperation. I think that's very important. With that background, I'm going to enter a jet and fly through the rest of what I have to talk about. Well, that's my topic, and that's my name. Well, some of the things that I have there have said, but let me lay some emphasis. Why do we need? Why are we talking about cooperation of military of the United States and Africa? In the opinions that I had, one of the biggest problems is that Africa is having a problem. And some of them are listed here. To get effective political leadership in Africa is a problem. There are usually social conflicts in Africa, like in Nigeria, where I come from. You see religious problems, you see intercommunal problems, you have a whole gamut of it. Does Nigeria have the mechanism in place to check this? Not too long ago, there was a problem of a religious problem in the northern part of Nigeria. What happened? How was it treated? How do we allocate our resources? When you look at all this, they become the deficiencies that has been creating failure for African government. And because the government is failing, the possibility is that most often they will be seen as people who need help. 
And so, if you're dealing with a military from outside the country, the impression would be, we want to build your army for you. Your military is not professional enough. Or we want to support you, or we want to do this or do that. Look at the case we had in Liberia. I was there. I think the corner here too was there. In Sierra Leone. What happened? We created a problem. We're begging the rest of the world to come in. The U.S. came in to Liberia to support us. I came to New York to collect communication equipment to support the operation in Liberia. I don't think we should be at that bus stop at this time. As long as we keep ourselves within that near failed state, we will continue to have reason to interact with not only the United States, presumably, but any other world that is ready to support us or to lift us up from our disadvantaged position. Well, I discussed the vulnerability of Africa, and that's part of what I've been talking about. Let's talk briefly about Africa. Like we've just had, there's a lot of controversy about Africa in Africa. Very respected scholars, even civilians, presidents in Africa, they've expressed their views. Some are for Africa, others are against. And within that group of others who are against, there are two classes. Some subtly, the others almost violently. We don't want Africa. I'm not giving my opinion. I'm giving the opinion of Africa, our scholars, and the officers. I interact with AFRICOM, so I have my opinion of AFRICOM, I have my views of AFRICOM. Okay, concern in Africa are mainly two. Some see it, like I said, as positive development. Others see it as threat. Why? Let's take the issue of the Gulf of Guinea. If a section of the people says that we don't want Africa, another section says, yes, we want it. Why? These are just the definition or the area that we call the Gulf of Guinea, which comprised, comprises of about uh, eight or nine uh, states within the uh, west and surrounding neighborhood like um, Gabon, uh, sorry, Angola, Equatorial Guinea, Nigeria, Republic of Congo, and a few other more. This region alone produces 10 billion barrels of, or have the reserve of about 10 billion barrels of oil. It is very, very key and very important to the energy supply to the west and to the east. So it should be a focus. The U.S. military is in the Gulf. 
I'm not saying AFRICOM is in the Gulf, but the U.S. military. And they've been doing a lot of job, very good job in the Gulf. We have problem in Niger Delta. That has been said repeatedly here. And they've been here to support in training, sometimes making provision for some of the uh, military equipments we don't have. They've also been involved in giving technical advice on how we can manage the security situation or challenges in the Gulf. The three major reasons why the United States military is present in the Gulf are stated there. The, stand, the, the position of advising to ensure that the maritime environment is secure and to provide basis for support for our Navy and presumably our land force that are there to ensure smooth running of the business in the Gulf. Much has been said about AFRICOM, so I think I will just go to the next stage. Now, I want to talk about Africa and AFRICOM. Since I started my lecture, I think I've been given an impression that the only military relationship between the United States and Africa is AFRICOM. No. There have been a lot of interaction between the United States and Africa. From the Barbary War of 1801 to the present support we enjoy in Liberia and other parts of Africa where there have been problems, the U.S. have been there. And most sincerely, the officers and individuals I interviewed have been very appreciative of the presence of or the cooperation that the U.S. military has been giving to us. But the problem, the major problem is that all these things, all this military support, they have been on the basis of come and go. They come, they spend the time that is required, they get the job done, and they go back. So now, it is difficult to comprehend why must they now come and stay? What is the problem in it? So Nigeria feel, for example, that African being with us will be counterproductive to whatever we stand for. They consider it to be unnecessary. Why? Because they believe that we can take care of ourselves. And they also believe that it will affect the sovereignty of Nigeria. Now, what is the solution that Nigeria prefer for this? They believe that let's address this issue by ourselves. Let's have a Gulf force, a force in the Gulf that we can manage. Let's put a whole bunch of things around the Gulf, whereby Nigeria will become the main actor. If we want the United States to come, they will come on our own terms. We will have an understanding we, are, we agree on what to do and how to do them. 
for South Africa. They believe that if AFRICOM is allowed to be in Africa, and they are the ones who allow that, it might create problem between South Africa and the rest of Africa, particularly Nigeria. So within Africa, there is that fear that, look, should we accept or should we not? If we decide to accept, there will be a problem. That is the first problem. The other thing is, if we accept Af AFRICOM and in near future, AFRICOM shows its color. And that color is that of destabilization. How do we account for it? Except for Liberia and um, President Ellen Johnson, Salif, who supported AFRICOM. I'm not sure if there's any other African country who has come openly to say, yeah, the force can stay. Well, there are concerns of Africans on Africa. Some of them are listed, as you can see. There are scholars from Africa, like Wafula Okumu, Ezekiel, Pajibo, Samuel Makinde, and a whole bunch of them, Lawrence uh, Devenji, uh, Khalil Malik, Vin they have a lot of views about Africa. For example, uh, Goth believed that the reason why Africa is coming to Africa is one, because of oil, and two, to have to checkmate Ghana, I mean, sorry, China in Africa. Khalid believed him, shared the view with him. But Vincent Crowley, who happens to be the head of public affairs of Africa, said no. That it may be right that Africa is coming to Africa probably because of oil, but that is exaggerated. That's not the totality. And of course, that there's no competition between United States and China in Africa. One question that I keep asking is this. About 1,500 U.S. personnel have been stationed in Djibouti since 2003. Africans are not complaining. There were no protests about it. Why do we now want to decide to say, Africom, don't come? Now, here we are, the views of African offices. I, I will just tell you one or two stories. I will start with General Malu of Africa, of Nigeria, who was a former chief of army staff, and who ran into trouble with his president then, General Lushegun Obasanjo. And why was that? Because Obasanjo wanted U.S. military to come to Nigeria and train military personnel on peacekeeping operation. Jamalu, as the chief of army staff, believed that, no, you can't do that. We are good. When Ekomog went to Liberia, we did a fine job. 
Yeah, we may not have the equipment and the money. But when it comes to the human deployment, we are good at it. We had victory within our subregion. So we have the capacity to handle ourselves. Of course, there was a problem between him and the president. He was relieved of his appointment as well as his commission. But that's one of the few officers who was able to rise up and say, no, whether it's wrong or right is not the issue. The issue remains is that there is another voice that says, no, you can't. Azazi, for example, have total support for AFRICOM coming to Nigeria. As a matter of fact, there were to be problems with respect to the present presence of U.S. military within the Gulf. It was Azazi as the chief of defense staff who said, what are you people talking about? Of course, anybody who has business anywhere has the right to defend the business. The U.S. has business within the Gulf. And so if they are coming to defend it, you should allow them. Another former chief of defense staff said, no way. You don't understand what you are talking about. If you know the way the Americans play their game, you will understand the fact they are now coming because of you. But they are coming because of self-interest. Again, these are not my views. I'm expressing the views of people who are alive and who have given their opinions to me as well as to the public. Ogoye was the chief of army staff, chief of defense staff. Ogoye was so happy about the support the United States gave when we were going to Liberia and Sierra Leone. He praised them and the like. So what I'm saying is this. There are people for and people against. And they have their reasons why they do it. I believe that I spoke to officers from Ghana, from Gabon, from uh, my, my colleagues whom we attended war college together with. I spoke with them. And the thing fell into two parts. We want, we don't want. Those who won, they gave the reason why they want. What are the reasons? If Africa comes to Africa, there will be development. There will be growth. There will be control. The democratic process may grow better. Those who say no, it's like, we don't want because if they come, they are coming to start installing leaders for us and things to that effect. But beyond all of this, the fact of the matter is that Africans love the United States. The way we are sitting reflects it. If you look around, you see many Africans among us. If you look at Osu, you see a lot of Africans who are professors and the like. We don't have any problem with that. What the problem is is this. Please tell us what you want to do. Bring us into the picture. Dialogue with us. Discuss with us. Let us know. Let us have the feeling of what you want to do. Whether you are sincere or not sincere, that's not the beginning. The platform is that let us talk. Come to us and talk to us. Africans are saying that you have about six or seven more other commands. You went to these countries where you put this command. You discuss with them before coming in. 
Now you want to bring Africa to Africa and you are not discussing with the leaders. Whether that is true or not, those are the views that has been expressed. What is my view? I'm of the opinion that there must be dialogue. There must be sincerity. And there must be respect. Yes, it's a fact that we have problem in Africa. Leadership problem, name it, corruption, all manners of things. But most countries went through the same process. Initially, they were able to overcome it. We as Africans, we will put ourselves together. We will overcome the problem we're having today. And we will be able to have a better interaction with the rest of the world. Because when we are doing it right, you will respect us. We'll be able to sit down. We will talk. You will listen. And we come up with a program that will be mutually workable. Thank you very much. For, for your kind invitation to be here, and I'm clearly very delighted to be with colleagues that I haven't seen for quite some time. Uh, the, the title of my paper has changed slightly uh, to read something like The Global War on Terror, Islam, and Afrikan. And part of the reasoning why I decided to inject Islam into the equation has to do primarily with the fact that there is a lot of misunderstanding uh, regarding this religion. And um, part of the reason also has to do with the fact that there are significant Muslim-majority states in West Africa that also have been the target um, of this very important policy. What I'm also suggesting, among other things, is that my presentation will also really re-echo a lot of the things that have so far been discussed by panelists from yesterday and today. So forgive me, should I repeat some of those concerns uh, that were raised earlier. Uh, The crux of my paper really is on the global war on terror and African and their policy implications for peace, security, and development in West Africa's 300 million inhabitants. 
the bulk of whom are mired, basically, in grinding poverty. What I also try to do in the paper is to assess the potential that the impact that the global war on terror could have on military institutions, both as organizations and as institutions within civil societies and the political landscape. And the kinds of insecurities that may crop up as a result in, in the SIP region. Basically what I'm suggesting is uh, this is important because the, the policy plank on which GWOT and Africa are built or hinge on uh, is primarily uh, military. The paper also argues that grinding poverty or the presence of ungoverned spaces alone are not sufficient conditions for West African Muslims to harbor foreign terrorists or engage in terrorist activity against the U.S. and other Western interests. Now, a subsection of this argument also is the contention that the international system, specifically in terms of international inequalities, asymmetries, and underdevelopment, are important contributor factors to the rise of so-called terrorism in this part of the world, and that the international system fundamentally is structurally very violent, especially in light of the fact that close to uh, a third of humans on this planet live on less than a dollar a day. Finally, the paper basically contends that constructing Islam and Muslims in West Africa specifically as potential members of global terrorist organizations and networks could in the end prove unproductive, counterproductive in, in this region and especially as it relates to U.S. interests in West Africa. And that it is important, in my view, uh, that analysts of Islamist movements in West Africa especially, and policymakers that seek to contain them, especially in terms of their demands, should be cognizant of the fact that there are different characteristics of Islam. And I spend a lot of time in the, in, in the, um, in the paper talking about the introduction of Islam in West Africa and how it came to be. And that one of the distinguishing elements between Islam in West Africa and perhaps the Middle East is the syncretic element that is so uh, prevalent in Islam in West Africa, basically meaning that it is a combination of many uh, African beliefs, practices, African sensibilities, which then basically sets it apart from the more militant, and I use that word reservedly, uh, from the more militant uh, in the politics that, that you would find in, in much of West Africa, in much of the Middle East. Uh, so then really the paper begins with an overview, talks about Africam, and it really resonates with a lot of the things that I said. And in the end, I provide some policy uh, suggestions. 
What I'm also doing in the first part of the paper is really talk about the fact that from around the 1100s till about the 1700s, Islam began to be present in, in West Africa. Uh, it, it, it's a religion that came through uh, traders, uh, and it was also an elite religion. And it was mostly embraced by the kings, uh, by the noble persons, and uh, it took time uh, before it became diffused to the larger population. And that came about largely as a result of the jihadist movements of the 1900s. Usman Danfodio, of course, in northern Nigeria, Sheikh Omar, uh, just to name a few, were critical in spreading uh, Islam. What I'm also suggesting in the paper is that Islam, therefore, has a different coloration as a result, one that is also quite distinct from the norms uh, and the politicized forms of Islam that one finds in Southeast Asia or possibly in the Middle East. What I'm also contending is that partly because of this variation, uh, we need to look at what we do in West Africa perhaps much more, much more critically. I should also hasten to say, though, that even though we are all Muslims, we share certain fundamental pillars in Islam, believing in Allah and fasting, giving zakat, we are really quite different in terms uh, of what we profess. Brotherhoods, the Khadriya, the Tarikha, all these are important, significant differences that distinguish Muslims in West Africa and Muslims in the larger Muslim world. Even though uh, the Khadriya Brotherhood came from Baghdad in the 11th and 12th century, and of course, you can find the Khadrs all over in West Africa. Uh, and the Murids, which basically came in the 1900s as a result of the formation by Sheikh Ahmed Bamba. Uh, in a nutshell, much of the, the clergy, much of the Islamic movements, especially during the colonial times, were mostly folks that collaborated with the colonial powers. There was some opposition here and there, but fundamentally, it was collaboration. In fact, after the colonial period, many argue that uh, the clergy, the murid, the tijaniya, uh, entered into some kind of a symbiotic relationship with the new political elite. And this, is, this becomes much more prevalent in Senegal in Gambia and some other parts of the subregion. So basically the paper uh, looks at Niger, looks at uh, northern Nigeria, looks at Guinea, Mali, Mauritania, Gambia, which I really call the Muslim majority states. Uh, the Muslim populations range anywhere from 47% uh, possibly in Nigeria to about 95, 97% in Guinea. Senegal is 95, Mauritania is 98, and so forth and so on. And uh, I think it is important, these nuances are important, I think, in helping us to decipher uh, the, the, the efficacy uh, of, of this potential um, uh, policy in, the, in, this, in this part of the world. 
What I'm also suggesting in the paper, among other things, is that part of, part of the reasoning that undergirds Afrikan is the assumption that these large Muslim populations and grinding poverty are in themselves sufficient as a basis for terrorism or harboring terrorists. And what I'm saying in the end is that Muslims by no means constitute a monolithic group. And that the mantra of, of, of anti-Westernism, kill, 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 or the abduction of, of civilians and being slaughtered are very alien to the politics uh, in, in, in West Africa, even in Nigeria, where many of its states in the north have adopted Sharia law. In my view, it is oppositional political violence more than the use of terror or terrorism that is in place. Boko Haram, something we mentioned, Grace mentioned yesterday, uh, really which translates very roughly that Western education is sin. Uh, I think they're using it primarily as a pretext uh, to gain greater share of, of Nigeria's wealth in Senegal, in Gambia, in Guinea, and other places. And I'll quote here uh, some, some scholars, uh, many of whom I'm sure you probably know. Mohamed Jouf of Columbia University puts it very cogently. And I quote, contrary to Iran or Syria, where the leaders of religious orders came together to form political Islamic organizations and introduce social projects, the advent of which required the overthrow of their political systems in Senegal and Gambia and the neighboring countries, Marabus, that means the clergy, have abstained from playing any role in the destabilization of the political administration. So, in a nutshell, the politics in this region are significantly different from what obtains in other parts of the world. And another scholar puts it well, uh, Linda Beck, who contends that unlike the Middle East and South Asia, where Islamic reformism has resulted in political changes by Muslim leadership, the piety associated with Islamic resurgence in Senegal and Gambia, and perhaps throughout the sub-region, has been translated into criticism of self-interested marable politicians who have been corrupted by the, by the secular politics of the region. And I go out in the paper and suggest that rather than countries like Senegal and Mali having ties to Al-Qaeda, what has been most prevalent has been the use of this region by Al-Qaeda, essentially, uh, to, to gain wealth, raise funds to support its programs in other parts of the world. And I'll just say this last part and move on to another. Islam in much of West Africa, therefore, is different. It does not exclude women, nor are women required to use the hijab. And that women, despite their second-class citizenship, generally have important roles to play within the political process. 
I move on them to say that while poverty pervades the lives of many West Africans, especially the youth, they have not succumbed to terrorism or suicide bombing, lured, basically lured by unbridled luxury in the hereafter. Uh, what I'm saying instead is these kids from Nigeria, the youth in particular, the Muslim youth from Senegambia and Guinea, Mali, instead are not joining Al-Qaeda. They are braving the open seas, often under very perilous conditions, while plying rickety boats into Europe in search of a better life for themselves and their families. What I do then is to talk about terrorism, and I think there has been a lot of talk about that in Kenya, in Nairobi, uh, in the Sudan, and so forth and so on. And then I talk about a little bit about AFRICOM, and really there has been a lot of discussion about that already, its creation, and, and, and so forth and so on. Uh, what I do then in the end uh, is to suggest, among other things, that while the U.S. effort at countering the specter of terrorism in West Africa are not limited to military initiatives alone, as it includes really a lot of uh, work for the training of teachers, job training, and so forth and so on, of young Muslims, the military component of the policy appears to trump that. Uh, the concern over securing ungoverned borders and strengthening weak states has witnessed dozens of American and European trainers who conduct exercises basically to curb this. What are the military implications? And I'm going through here very quickly. Um, and I talk about that, the fact that West African military establishments are varied in terms of uh, where they're situated, their countries. And that they are differentiated along chains of command, uh, rank, training, administrative religion, and so forth and so on. Basic literature. And I talk about their role during the colonial period as well as their role in the post-colonial period. And that at this juncture in African history and West African history specifically, uh, West Africans have gone through years of IMF and World Bank structural adjustment policies. In fact, some of them have, in fact, toyed with and experimented with democracy and democratization. And it seems to me the emphasis that Africa now places on the table may tend to deviate attention uh, from this very important exercise that ought to be that to, ought to be supported. What I'm also entertaining is, uh, conversely, that there is a clear potential danger uh, that the middle component of the policy may, in fact, uh, emphasize uh, policies that may be counterproductive to its very uh, intent. What I'm also entertaining is that it is possible that Africa may, in the end, do exactly what it seeks to do. But that is still something that, in the, in the end, is debatable. Let me very quickly... Uh, how many minutes do I have? One. One minute. Okay. Let me very quickly. <laughs> let me very quickly just say what I have in mind here. Then, and I think of the other things I've heard, uh, this also may resonate well. 
And it has to do with the fact that um, I'm arguing basically that the United States uh, has a very rich culture, and in particular a very rich democratic culture. And it has tremendous leverage when it comes to its use of soft power. And I'm suggesting, among other things, uh, that for the U.S. to engender consent and support of its policies, um, it needs to use more of its soft power. I think America is at its best. And I think there's a lot being done already in this, in this regard. But I'm arguing that a lot more, perhaps, needs to be done in winning people's hearts and minds. America, I believe, is at its best when it does that. Uh, I'm also suggesting, finally, that the U.S. must tap its Africanist uh, scholarly community. Uh, and, and really redouble its efforts in training of young, young, young Americans uh, to speak African languages, study and understand Islam, as well as West African cultures. In other words, our worldview, among other things. Not that there is one worldview, but at least many worldviews. So as to tailor and influence policies that enhance mutual U.S. and African interests. And I think it is only then that AFRICOM uh, would perhaps have the potential, uh, or realize the potential, that all of us hope for in the long term. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Sen. Uh, we come to the formal presentations and this panel. I will open it up for questions instead of trying to summarize some of the presentations, but let me just uh, say it will not be fair to have a Professor Ako Adonbo to answer questions on Christian Name's paper. Uh, she was gracious enough to help us present it. Uh, the rest of the presenters are here, and uh, if you have questions, please uh, don't hesitate and comment. I see that uh, Julius has uh, let go of his uh, able co-presenter, so we'll ask all the questions of him and have him respond. After this, we'll go and eat lunch. Questions, comments, Clement. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thanks a lot. We're beginning to wind down now, and so part of my comment or question is towards the end. I don't know what the last panel will look like. Um, with Jeanette's response to PSA, she gave us an insight into the reworkings of foreign policy. So it goes like this. Um, President Watt, you wanted to help us um, catch those terrorists there. Oh, yeah, great. Oh, by the way, we also need your help to get those Casamanos terrorists, okay? What? Casamanos terrorists? No, no, no. Oh. The point is, we may need to engage the concept of terrorism and terrorists. I, 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 I looked at the program and we, we kind of assume that we are talking about the same thing. And the more you listen to the panelists, the more you need to engage that conception. So I will urge you and, and, and Joyce to find a way in the final product to, to just engage that uh, just a little bit. Um, General, I was fascinated by a methodological statement, and, and, and I, I want to get back to that a little bit. He said, in, in Africa, I don't know if it's Nigeria, but in Africa, methodologically, it's, it's difficult to see um, a detour between the government and the military and the academy. It seems to be in the same. 
is that we see some differentiation. And I, and I think this presentation gave us some of that. Um, is it possible to see some of the conflict that you've mentioned, right, as not necessarily a response to US plans, but domestic policies and complexities? And the example that comes to my mind here very quickly is the Ukraine, right? Quite frankly, I think Obama should have fired me much earlier. Um, but the problem that the regime was facing in 1999, 2000 plus was two, right? How do you reform the military in a way that they no longer put a threat to the force peaceful power? And that was Obama's agenda. Um, bringing in the, the US here and all of that, of course, he wants to ring the <laughs> Nigerian military with intelligence, so, so at least he knows what's going on. The US is going to help him with that, yeah. If I were Malu and Nigerian military officer, I would be opposed to the US president, uh, president as well because I want to be able to play the fool. So, so, so part of that is not so much against the US. It could be the Soviets, it could have been Ghanaians, it could have been anybody that simply wants to swap their benefits to play the fool. So, so, so in, in that sense, how do, you, how do you make a distinction between an anti-American position and position match as opposed to I need it personally, desperately. If you can, you can get that to me, that would be, be, be really great. But, but in terms of the general allocation of force, one of the things that I find very striking in this thing is how words and, 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 and codes can be appropriated for, for budgetary reasons. Um, my earliest experience at the UN in 1995 was an agenda for peace, right? And, and, and the new Secretary General was dealing with that. Our director called us one day, New York PAGs, and said, listen, I'm going to New York next week, and I need some money for a program of disarmament and all of that. Can you find a way that we're gonna, I'm going to present this to locals, an agenda for peace? Suddenly, climate change, agenda for peace. Uh, demilitarization, agenda for peace. Women in development, agenda for peace. <laughs> so we should be really shocked when we see a lot of the budgetary items for Africa being put under the Pentagon. It's not because Bush wants to use the Pentagon to go invade Africa, but because it simply makes political sense from a budgetary point of view. Um, it's more sellable, and then you can move, move the money to other things. So I guess the point is we should be less sensitive to where the money is going as opposed to I'm more sensitive to what the money is being used for.
a regular event in Nigeria at the state. Somebody will come and say, ah, it's so so possible, I've done this and done that. But the government said, no, this should stop. And so the third reason is to make sure that the military are not equipped enough to be able to carry out the coup. But like I'm saying, that is not the reason for Mali. Mali had a general reason to say no to Obasanjo. Then, is Obasanjo sincere? Or was he sincere? So these are the questions that we really beg to answer. Okay, to help uh, sort of focus the discussion, how many of you have questions relevant to the discussion by the responses by uh, General Jones. I saw him. Monica. What's the comment? Come. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I should. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I just Peter. want want to echo what Ramos has said. Malu opposed MDRI on principle, and he made it very clear. Uh, even though General Jones is saying that the MDRI program was well designed, but there were elements of it that were insulting. Uh, Manu pointed out that one of the first things the Americans wanted to do was to teach Nigerian soldiers the drill, military drill. And he said this is insulting. For a country that has participated virtually in every peacekeeping operation since independence, if you are coming to train us on peacekeeping, we are more experienced than the US. So why are you even coming to teach us drill? that Nigeria and Nigerian soldiers already knew how to do. So he said, all we need, as General Ragos has said, give us the equipment. That's what we lack, not experience in peacekeeping. And he pointed out very clearly that by then, all the places where American soldiers had participated in peacekeeping operations, they were not as successful. So, so, so that became the basis for his that Now, there could be some other things, but at least publicly, he made it very clear that the program, and he also he also said very publicly that the first thing the MPRI people did when they came yeah. was to ask the, the Nigerian military uh, for its uh, uh, order of battle. And he said, what, what, why are you coming to ask us for order of battle if the mission is supposed to be teach us peacekeeping. Why would we, as Nigeria, as a sovereign nation, give you our order of
and if terrorized, not wasn't uniform military. Um, you know, they 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 were their private company um, that does good work, but um, he he was he was. It, it, but but the perception from the U.S. side was when I was talking about stereotypes was that Nigerian soldiers come with nothing, no kit, um, because they're trying to get more. You know, and that all they want is equipment, right? They don't they don't want the training, and that they were indisciplined when they were in Liberia and other places. And so there was really this huge, mis, you know, gap of perception going both ways. And then Nigerians were quite accurate about we've done more peacekeeping than people are coming to train us. <laughs> you've done no peacekeeping. So what are you talking about? It was just like that. Um, it was very unfortunate, but it was a professional. I mean, it was a professional perspective of Mongols. was also reflecting the sentiments of the officers within the Nigerian army. They were opposed to it. I mean, all the middle-ranking officers were opposed to it in the Nigerian army. And the, the senior associates that before the public. And the public was also opposed to it. Now, the question was, if General Malu went to Obasanjo and said, look, we are opposed to this, does he have the right as you know, the chief of army staff to express that? And the, and the commander in chief said no. Then Malu went to the press to let the Nigerian public know. So that is one issue. And I have called it a special kind of problem. Is that we are trying to draw the boundary between subordination, you know, to the you know uh, to, 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 to the civilian government and the national interest. Thank you. Respond? Okay. Same way it plays out to the no, US military. Yeah, it's not General Officer until age 65. 
Thank you. One more response, and we give you the floor to uh, Julius uh, to respond to the question Clement Kadibe raised. Lieutenant Colonel Spangler. I'm going to the remainder of my time to the. Uh, okay. Imperatives that are underpinned by grievances. And many of these grievances are expressed through, uh, through religion, through ethnicity, uh, and other um, forms of identity in the end. Perhaps it would be good to go up into what is the United Nations definition. definition. Because this is something that, uh, that we're looking at all the time. Is ungoverned spaces at the global level and specifically in West Africa and secondly uh, you're going to get instructions on the yeah. way forward to no, no, spend no, a lot no, of time. No, 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 you, 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 you don't need to do that. I, I think the title of the conference itself raises questions about the use of the term terrorism. I, I, I know. Everybody put it yeah. in, 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 in,
Monday going to be all over the place. I think, I think, you know, and I don't want to be seen as the end of the chin of command, but I think we need a separate conceptual chapter after the introduction. Any other question or comments before you go to lunch? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm coming at this again, uh, listening to, to everybody. I think I'm the only person from the humanities here today. Oh, you're here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and uh, as I'm listening to the uh, speakers, uh, which I'm thoroughly enjoying, uh, uh, the um, the one thought that uh, that keeps coming up for me is the fact that at the beginning of the decolonization process, when the uh, when African writers started to weigh in on the issues of uh, colonization and the, the uh, beginnings of independence, that we focus quite a bit things fell apart and, and um, the, uh, the river between, and, you know, all, you, you, you know the, the list from, from uh, Achebe and on. And all the way to even yesterday, the, the focus is still on what is wrong in Africa. Is there a way that, I know <coughs> most of the people in here have read all those I'm hearing the undercurrent and undertones from those uh, literatures in the, in the analysis, in the evaluation, and all of that. Is there a list, by any chance, of things that Africa and Africans can do? Is there, is there any such list? I, I, I applaud the idea of discussing Is there a way that uh, the work amongst uh, this kind of uh, group could begin to focus on um, looking at, the, at what works in Africa so that we can, we can begin to aim at solutions uh, that will uh, enable those? I'm, I'm really getting, uh, and, and here in, 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 um, in the United States, what it reminds me of is the focus on black on black crime and violence, which uh, puts us at five o'clock um, on uh, ways of you know, putting more people in jail and, and, and focusing on, on uh, solving uh, for the negative. Um, I, I really would like to, maybe in the next three, four years,
sit for so long and talk about one topic, but really the whole topic, as you said earlier, is that it's leadership, it's leadership, and once again, it's leadership. Without correct leadership, something will never get spread away. I guess that's at the top of the pyramid. But I mean, I can certainly imagine the day, and I see Africa, what's happening, it's changing slowly along the coastline.
Actually, I really hate to be the bit of person to, to do this, but uh, I heard quite uh, difficult things I I'd like to say one word about. First of all, let me uh, tie with uh, the question that Yanari uh, asked uh, and uh, what she also said. I really believe that uh, uh, now the process could be different, mm -hmm. but I think when it comes to Africa, there is always uh, what I had told you in the recent aspect, a certain idea of Africa. Well, essentially, and that was uh, the words of Bush announcing um, uh, the creation of Africa. Uh, I'm not quoting exactly, but uh, we are bringing uh, almost the blessings of uh, uh, peace and security and development. So basically, we are bringing it. Uh, you are in such bad shape that uh, essentially we can't take care of uh, of uh, the the thinking process and the uh, the, the decision process, and then uh, we you come on board. I think that's part of the general attitude toward Africa that uh, I think this whole uh, 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 critique about Africa really is also based on. Now, as far as the narrative that uh, Sister mentioned, it does exist, and we shouldn't be wary about falling into the attitude the left, at least that narrative about the continent. That being said, we should also understand that, and certainly we should put ourselves in, in um, uh, what the French call la longue durée, uh, the, the long view. Uh, the continent does uh, have serious problems. It's going through a phase uh, where we really are in deep, serious problems. We cannot uh, uh, ignore that. It does exist. But also our analysis of what is going on, I think reflects also, uh, aside from the narrative that we sometimes fall into, the fact that we are not satisfied, as General said, with where we are. We can do much better. We are we are irritated about the waste that we see happening, the potential that is squandered. We see 40 years that basically have been completely uh, 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 misused, and we are angry about it. And we tend, uh, of course, to, to, to say, well, uh, things are going really bad. We need to change. So that I think is what we should understand when uh, we tend to see. A lot of us here say, well, things are bad. They are certainly bad, uh, but uh, he's right. Uh, we, we are moving a little bit in the right direction, but we are not there yet. We can do much, much better. Thank you very much. Uh, uh,